US-China AI, open versus closed source, and should I really be reading papers with my spare time? To discuss, I have on Nathan Lambert, an ML scientist at the Allen Institute for AI, who writes the fantastic Interconnects newsletter. Tom Gilbert, a consultant on AI and society, working to build reward reports for AI accountability. They both together co-host the fantastic Retort AI podcast. Welcome to China Talk, you two. Thanks. Welcome to the Retort. Is there a first cross post? <laughs> Good to be here. I'm personally concerned about what will happen when the major Chinese tech companies ban their employees from drinking Zingtao. Because, <laughs> because I'm concerned that until it happens, we're going to be dealing with a lot of Chinese language models that have Bayesian glow. Uh, we it's might cut this one for the China Talk audience, but... <laughs> this is a uh, tradition of the Retort podcast where we open with a, a pun. Tom, Nathan, what has been remarkable to you over the past year and more broadly about development of artificial intelligence in China? I mean, I can start. I think that I like being at Hugging Face during this kind of takeoff phase of AI going faster and faster. We're just at a steady pace now, I think. Most smart people saw that pace coming, but most smart people have continually been surprised by the quality of outputs from China and their kind of influence on the ecosystem here in the U.S. and the development of open language modeling and the economy around that. And I think trying to predict that is very hard, but given the backdrop of all the chip bans, etc., seeing China in the open landscape of language models as a peer to the U.S. and the French, which are probably the prominent areas right now, is something starting 2023 most people wouldn't have expected. Yeah, I mean, I would second, I think, everything Nate has said there. It's an interesting kind of moment where the, you know, international ecosystem of model development seems to just be kind of going extremely fast and has been going extremely fast for, for some time. It doesn't seem like it's going to slow down anytime soon. It's been very interesting to see the, I was going to say ebb and flow, but I think just the increasing intensity of the open versus closed debate in relation to that context. Although I think that there's more work to be done on actually figuring out what openness means in the context of whether it's US or China or Europe that's kind of leading the charge, which I think we'll get into. Yeah. So so let's start on the sort of the fact that you have Chinese as well as French models, which, you know, seem to be to be, you know, only months behind the state of the art of what Anthropic or or OpenAI can, can currently field. Nathan, I think sort of the this this in particular has really been the story of the second half of 2023. What is it about the sort of current technological paradigm of what you need to make a cutting edge large language model that allows, you know, the entire world, it seems to be fast followers of OpenAI? I think we're more than a few months behind OpenAI, but that's kind of a pedantic point. I think that... <laughs> The internet is available is what kind of predicates it. And especially if you compare at kind of the llama scales or like mistral scales of models. So anywhere from like 
seven to 50 billion parameters, reproducing that on compute that is available is actually pretty doable in terms of the process. I mean, within the week of recording this, like Alan AI is going to release a language model soon. That's good on benchmarks. Like there's a lot of people that are doing this where you're pre-training small to moderate LLMs. I think using multiple size descriptors for a model is pretty silly, but like it's still doable with the existing internet as it is. So you can still scrape a lot off the internet and the compute is affordable. I think there's a lot of ballparks on what like a one H 100 costs or one a 100. If it's like 10 to $20,000 per year per commitment, whatever, like Chinese companies have that much money too. They have people that can scrape the internet. I, I don't really understand how the firewall works. Like if they can still scrape the entire U S internet or like, cause hugging face is banned. Like where do they, like where do they get their data sets to do this? It's something at an operational level. I don't really understand, but the whole idea is that as this cost structure scales by another 10 or a hundred X is like, will everyone be left behind? And that's what the chip ban and, and a kind of layman's reading is targeting is kind of this continuation of growth. So it'd be really interesting to see like how far it continues. And my kind of read on open source, like open weight models when they're released is that the pace of progress is so high that it'll seem like a French model is the best model or then like Llama 3 will come out and it'll be better and it's an American model or a Chinese model will come out. And it just is because there's a bit of noise in the training process and the velocity of improvement. If you just look at a noisy up into the right plot, it's going to trade off a bunch of times as everyone's figuring out the same stuff. So I don't think like there's, it's the point that they're in the same envelope is worth discussing, but any one winner is not declarable right now. So I think there's this, so innovators curse dynamic, which Sam Altman has tweeted about a little bit where, you know, him talking about it being like thousands of times harder to, you know, take the first step. And once sort of you've charted out the path of whether it's a, you know, a, 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 a mix of experts model or, or, you know, whatever data set you're using, then the sort of folks coming in from behind you, either in, in from a closed or, or open source out, outlook, just have an incredibly, easy, you know, a technically less difficult, way less expensive way of um, coming in behind you. Is that something that is you know, likely or unlikely to last, you know, over, say, one to I don't know, three-year horizon, if that's even too far to, to, to speculate on, on, on these things, Nathan and Tom. It depends on what you're looking for. I think that if you're looking at like general purpose language models, it'll probably start to fade in the next few years, the next year or few. Like the next real architectural change to GPT-N, so like GPT-5, like they won't call it that, I think until they have a major systems change or architectural change. I don't know if it really makes sense for open models to try to do that. I think GPT-4 being whatever it's like, like whatever the rumored parameters is, is actually kind of pushing the limits. But in terms of the models that the long tail people are using, whether it's on smaller clusters that you have at startups or on your MacBook, I think there's kind of going to be a forking of different scaling laws where people are interested in different things. And... It, the allure of reproducing ChatGPT, so to say, is already kind of wane, waning or waxing, whatever the smaller one is, <laughs> going from compared to last year. So like last March or whatever, everyone was obsessed with that, but it's kind of a 
non-winnable goal. So I think people are rightfully moving on, with, but you never see announcements about it because no one wants to admit defeat. Nate and I haven't actually discussed this yet. It'll be interesting to also see how that dynamic plays out with these new kind of initiatives that are being started. We saw the Empire AI announcement, I think, finally kind of got leaked such and such yesterday. (laughs) Right now, we're seeing a lot of what a political economist might call like institutional isomorphism, where uh, states, other companies in other parts of the world or even stateside are trying to copy the open AI model and, and keep pace with it. I agree with Nate that that's getting kind of stale and less interesting over time. And it is going to maybe hit the road when the infrastructural capabilities of states are operating on a different timeline, different budgets, different priorities, have different incentives, and ultimately, I think, different kind of ambitions and and projects than what a company like OpenAI necessarily wants to do. Yeah. Let's flip the question. What do you know about people in China trying to do this? Like, what are the biggest tech tech companies in China doing for their like high profile language models? Because we like I my lens is like the Quern model, Yi model, all these things. Some models have partial Chinese affiliation, but like, what is the enterprise side of that? Yeah. I mean, my my sense is that the sort of dynamic that you just identified of like. People think it's silly to try to compete with OpenAI on their own terms. Is just, you know, that doesn't register. A because OpenAI is banned, and B because you know China's a China's a sort of strategic competitor to the U.S. And so it is a like a a like politically not palatable answer for AI, which is has been identified for years in China as like the strategic technology qua strategic technology for this to be something that, you know, China will just sort of like shrug its hands at and be like, all right, maybe we'll just like focus on making some cute on device um, uh, uh, models or, or something. So the sort of who is going to win the foundational race in the current architectural paradigm that we're that we're we're living in, you know, circa January 2024 is not clear in China. And you have a number of established firms, the, 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 the Baidu's and the Ollie's of the world, as well as a very, very well-funded startups like Kimi that are still basically playing the sort of like mixture of experts. We're going to try to sort of pump this as big as we can and, you know, hope that we can make something, you know, broadly capable to what uh, GPT-4 is. I don't think that I don't think that I don't think people are sort of like running, running, running scared of open AI because they're just not a domestic competitor. The uh, API access is banned. Sorry, let me rephrase that. So, you know, uh, ChatGPT is not available available domestically in China, so enterprises can't sign up for <laughs> to sort of build build enterprises and, and startups can't sort of like build their, their companies on them. So there's there's a much kind of and and more messy competitive dynamic currently going on in the in the Chinese ecosystem. Yeah, that's not surprising. It's like most of the models that I brought up are probably like probably trained on OpenAI outputs, anyways. Yeah, whether or not they like actually have access to the API. Well, there was that. There was that. Story I mean, like, recently, ByteDance was the, the first one. company. Yeah, <laughs> not the only company doing that, but we won't anger any friends here. So uh, let's transition at, uh, for, for a second to this kind of open versus like this this, this fight for the soul of, of uh, the future of, of, of AI, Tom. What is the what is the current 
what what are the maybe deep origins and current manifestations of the of the you know open versus closed imperatives in the AI space? Yeah, it's I mean it's a large question. I just was reflecting as we were as we were discussing this. There's a kind of history here of in the American context, right? Of Silicon Valley tech development, software development being influenced in a lot of ways by the legacy of the kind of free spirit of the 60s. You know, you think of like classic books like from counterculture to cyberculture, this idea that there can be this kind of different plane on which people who are largely hobbyists, I think, people who are comfortable playing with code, playing with tech, kind of creating these virtual worlds and spaces in which they can either, you know, inhabit or interact or create things, play with things. Obviously, kind of Burning Man would be a kind of like physical, spiritual exemplar of that spirit. I have sensed, this is a little provocative, but I have sensed that there's this kind of spirit, this kind of ether in the open source conversation for AI right now around maintaining something like that hobbyist spirit, that hobbyist creed, and this element of this kind of culture of like not needing to depend on some kind of either like large corporate entity or state apparatus to kind of like be the guard of your ability, in this case, I guess, to play deeply with what these models are doing. That's a very quick gloss on one way to read the history here. I also think, though, that in a larger sense openness of a model and openness of AI needs to be approached much more in terms of a a vector rather than a scalar. And what I mean by that is it's not just like the degree to which the parameters of a model have been released or not, or how many of them have been released or how, how interpretable that information is. It's also understanding openness itself as the relationship that the company that has developed the model has with its own users, its own clients, enterprises, and also the kind of political apparatus in which it's operating. So for example, openness is a value that is at stake in different ways in both science and politics. In science, openness is necessary for standards like peer review, experimentation, reporting of results, comparison across data streams and whatnot. And you see that across, you know, the history of science back to the Enlightenment. If and maybe not before that. <laughs> but you certainly see it back to the Enlightenment. The alchemists were not that open, is what I mean by that. But political openness is important too. Political openness includes things like, again, what does it mean for political leaders to be responsive to feedback? Is there the possibility of dissent? Is there the possibility of informing what the future incentives of leaders will be. In what sense is the political system operating as a safety valve on discontent rather than just sort of rubber stamping whatever leaders happen to claim about what they're doing or what policies they're or they're, they're enforcing or I guess in this case, what models are being developed or released. You know, there's this famous, Nate and I have discussed this, I think there's this famous example of, Nate, do you remember this one? Uh, Sam Altman did this like informal poll of, of that room asking them, like how many people in this room would like us to take like a, what was it just like a more open stance towards like GPT-5 <laughs> like and like he just was like show of hands or like please clap and like everyone 
like started <laughs> clapping. This is a video you can look it up. And he he sort of is like he's like visibly taken aback. He's just like, oh whoa, that. And he says something very interesting there. I think what he said is something like, that's interesting data. <laughs> But, but <laughs> yeah, but, it's like that's interesting. That's interesting in data. We're not but but we're it. not going to do it, right? <laughs> like we're not. And like I think that right there is implicit in the words he used to convey his surprise. There is, I think, a very different understanding of openness than just like the technical kind of aspect of like how much information is being released about whatever model happens to be on the docket this this news cycle. So you know we have this like you know just just to summarize we have like some in very broad strokes competing philosophies basically open ai like was open about publishing its research about sort of being very transparent about allowing everyone and their mother to access their model weights until we got to to, to gpt2 and then gpt3 gpt4 it's gotten progressively quieter and sort of on the other side we have you know i don't we're not calling Meta like a band of pirates, but a sort of wide range of other Meta and the band of pirates, <laughs> a wide range of other firms that have taken different approaches to just how transparent they're they are about you know what into the make what went into the making of the model and how many sort of controls and strictures they are around having researchers and customers access different you know what they've created at different levels of depth. Could you sort of briefly? give a a sense of like what are the you know why why you know how open or closed a model is is relevant from a sort of broader societal and like you know policymakers perspective what are the going to be what what are the what are the takeaways years a few years down the road if you know one or another one or another of these visions end up being the one that really ends up driving how the companies operate and the regulatory environments in which they're you know living under I think the biggest things are like safety and market structure, where there's the narrative that closed weights, i.e. not really having access to them except via an API is safer because the company is better. (laughs) The company is good at this stuff and it doesn't expose risks to so-called teenagers with a laptop. And that predisposes that the company themselves are good at keeping things safe, which OpenAI lost a lot of credibility on for obvious drama reasons. And on the market side is that like, it, I guess it's like an obvious downside of closed models that aggregates demand and ability if it's closed off where it's hard harder to build an ecosystem over it. From a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But from a, like a regulatory perspective, having distribution of if you view it as a layer of compute infrastructure, like having different AWSs of the world and different things that they specialize in is very beneficial to a market growing on top of it that builds this technology. And that's probably already transitioned to openness. I think the primary economic reason for openness is that it'll just generate a better ecosystem, which will have good outcomes and quote unquote, make society better. I think where these kind of openness absolutist people so like the accelerationists think that like we're in the dark eras of the internet where you have to sign in to 40 things and have all these subscriptions and tv services are making you stop watch tv and all these stupid things and we have to get to ai fast because it'll solve all of our economic problems and therefore societal problems 
there are other ways of looking at this, which is like openness and access to models enables a broader t- distribution of researchers to look at the model and study safety from their lens, whether that's cybersecurity, biosecurity, understanding what how the models are converging and like what they actually have representations for. It's pretty much having access to open model weights is a whole research ecosystem on its own. Like think about the G like we, everyone loves to make fun of the papers that are like, I prompted GPT four and it did this for me. It's like, think about how compelling those research papers would be if they actually had access to the model weights and could go like 10 layers deeper and fine tune the models and try to improve it. It's like, like, that's kind of my argument is we would learn so much more if we had access to the model weights and by learning more, I think we're more likely to understand what the actual risks are and build better policy and build better safeguards because so much of this is up in the air. Can I bring in Albert Hirschman? Please. You have to say who he is. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we were chatting about this offline before recording this. Yeah, so a lot of, again, I'm just going to sort of be the political economist in this conversation. So to kind of echo the theme of what Nate was saying, a lot of what nurturing an open source ecosystem here will mean is you know, how do you grow the conditions for growth? In other words, how do you not just make it so that a lot of individual practitioners happen to be able to, you know, just have this kind of libertarian relationship with these interfaces, but how can you actually create linkages between and across different sectors of the economy in ways that create this like flywheel, this virtuous cycle where the development of these models, uh, have they have capabilities that are useful to other sectors, but they're also open in ways that those other sectors can make more effective use of them. They can experiment on them, they can play with them, they can maybe contribute or add different sources of data or their own methodologies to kind of whether whether for fine tuning or some other kind of forms of specialization or interface development that might even be hard for us to imagine right now. And this is actually an old problem. This is not in any way a new problem for developmental economics, right? So a lot of the history of what it meant for a developing economy in the mid to late 20th century to kind of catch up with the developed countries, one of the hardest lessons to learn was, you know, don't necessarily copy everything that the developed countries did. You know, why is it that Taiwan's economy exploded, South Korea's economy exploded? There's a whole field of study sort of showing how and why it is that certain economies are able to develop in the way that they do. One of the most important lessons being what's called unbalanced growth, where what you do when you're trying to grow a kind of national economy is instead of just copy and copying and pasting whatever happened to work in the 19th or the 18th century in Great Britain or the United States in terms of how their economies took off, is you kind of intentionally overdevelop certain sectors of the economy because what that does is creates incentives for linkages to the other parts of the economy because there's a different labor capital relationship there, a ratio that makes it very cost effective for the overdeveloped industries to partner with other ones. And so I think there's this major kind of unanswered question in LLM development and release right now, which is how is it that these incredibly capital intensive, top down, rarefied, found, quote unquote, foundation models? can actually help induce that kind of those kinds of linkages to other sectors of the economy. Because right now, what we first saw with, I think, GPT-3 or GPT-4 was the first 
kind of major brands and and companies to partner with OpenAI. They were only like some of the like you know Fortune 500 companies, basically companies that had an extremely strong sense of their own brands, their own resources, their own PR. So they had the resources to partner, but this ends up producing this kind of very top-heavy economic dynamic where you've got this kind of like one LLM provider working with like a handful of multi-billion dollar clients in such a way that the rest of the world just kind of like watches passively. But that's not the way you have to kind of grow this ecosystem. There's lots of other kind of modalities through which either through API access or through lots of other mechanisms, there's a way for medium or even like small businesses to have a more kind of living relationship with these models and forms of openness that are requisite with those relationships. A lot of what that means, I think, is an open question, but that's the kind of ecosystem that I remain very curious about. Yeah, you know, a few things to pick up on. like. If I'm sitting in the U.S. Small Business Administration, like I'm not entirely sure in 2024 what to tell everyone who has a small business loan aside from like download ChatGPT and like play around with it and try to figure it out. Because you're, you're, you're totally right that we're at the point where like, you know, you have open AI signing contracts with Bain and Coca-Cola and Pfizer and right. the sort of um, current dynamic is in order for this to be something that's meaningful and impactful to your business, like you kind of still have to, you know, fine tune your own model or like, you know, put in what's probably like millions of dollars of work to like get it into your work stream. Whereas, you know, Jordan Schneider doing his taxes in 2023 with fucking QuickBooks online is still stuck with this terrible software that can't even characterize my, you know, you know, categorize my expenses. And I have to sit there and, and, and click through it because there's just not, we're not at the point where this stuff is good enough or easy enough to use that you can just, you know, talk to it for three minutes and it, and it can solve all your problems. I want to come to the sort of cases that the open versus closed communities are currently making in capitals in the world. Because the one that you just made, Tom, is like, it's kind of, it's an uphill battle, which I'm sure you've experienced in your time spent in Washington in that the sort of benefits are not particularly clearly defined, kind of diffuse, end up playing out over a longer time horizon. Whereas you have the cult, you know, the, 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 the team closed saying, look, this is, you know, this is the next atom bomb. And you don't want China getting access to it. You know, we're a national champion. You need to support us. And by the way, you, you don't, you know, you don't want any, any, any kid with a, you know, with it, with an M3 laptop being able to play around with these weights because they could do something really dangerous with it. So, you know, what, what is your sense of like the, the kind of like mindshare battle currently, not just within the broader AI ML researcher community of disappointed people at that Sam Altman speech, but, you know, within the, the sort of, I don't know, discourse media and generally, and then in, in Washington in particular about how these two cases are, 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 are currently being played out as, you know, we're, we're in the very early innings with the, you know, AI executive order, but like, we're going to start to get to a point, I think, in the, in, the, in the coming years where you'll end up having more impactful government action, which will end up biasing the, the, the trajectory of all this in one direction or another. Tom, can you repeat the famous Rand quote from the retort? 
the Rand quote. You have to work it. You have to work at Rand if you want to influence the executive department. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that yeah. was part of what we discussed recently. Well, I, but I would also add. Yeah, that, go ahead. Nick. There are also ideological leaders that aren't in politics that will effectively say things like, if we don't do this, China wins in terms of being more open, because the assumption of their worldview is that there will be a thriving open source-ish, open ecosystem around language models. That's their presumption, that like there will be so much value by generating one of those that if the US doesn't, someone else will. And that someone else is implied as China in a kind of ideological way based on the economic capital requirements and things like that and the where tech economies lie. The, there's probably more nuanced political things than kind of quick vibe takes like that. I, I point at like the Mark Andreessen's of the world when I think of that type of vibe. Yeah, I mean, my take on this is Washington is very risk averse because it is a very large political entity. And when an entity gets larger, it tends to become more risk averse, which is an analogy I'm comfortable making, whether we're talking about biology or whether we're talking about states or what have you. I think that's generally true. It's certainly true now. And yeah, there are interesting voices that I also largely don't agree with, like Andreessen, who push for the kind of other side of this. But I think at the end of the day, when you have a very risk-averse political structure and it is given any compelling reason to think that there is civilizational or societal risk from the misuse of a technology that even its designers don't really understand the mechanisms of, its attitude is going to be, when in doubt, close it down. When in doubt, allow it to be closed and if that's not sufficient incentive for you, then yes, the window dressing is China will do it anyway. And so it's it's better if you really just don't try and slow this down. It's better if you try and make it so that we can approach, you know, scaling and, and whatever, what have you, as quickly as possible. And if the cost of that is in some kind of enclosure, then so be it. My view and my own work on reward reports speaks to this is that I think the lesson of history, and I think actually also the lesson of a lot of biology, is that democratic systems are safe systems. They're safer. And there is a certain degree of openness that is commensurate with that. It's not totally open. A living organism is not completely open to its environment. If it were, then we would instantly get sick and die. But those organisms are selectively permeable. There is a, a living relationship with their surroundings that makes it makes them responsive to feedback in ways that are healthy, in ways that support flourishing. And I think that's a very rich analogy for the current kind of ecosystem right now. And I think actually the, the path here, as I see it, is that a somewhat greater degree of openness is going to create the seeds. It's going to plant the seeds for greater mechanistic understanding of what the hell we're building and also greater, a greater political sense of what the stakes are. If we were in a position to be confident in the thought experiments around X risk, the world would look very differently than it does right now. I actually don't think most of the scenarios are very well grounded and remain largely metaphorical and highly speculative. If we want those to actually be as sci sufficiently scientific that when we see think tank studies come out about these risk cases that actually they warrant the degree of trust that they presuppose, I think a lot more openness about what is being built and how it's being built and what methodologies are being used or not used is requisite for that. So, so Nathan, 
You're partially inspired by your newsletter and 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 my sort of vain attempts to follow a research trajectory. The research trajectory of all this stuff. I uh, booked a trip to New Orleans and hung out for a week at Neurops, which is the world's largest AI research conference, which is uh, you know mostly academic with an academic bent, but but plenty of industry running around as well. I have some like initial like reflections that I would be curious to get both of your takes on. So. The first thing that was striking to me and was just was just how global the entire research scene was. You know, I've read lots and lots of studies about talent and where it comes from in the in in sort of computer science and adjacent field, but it's one thing seeing those uh, bar charts and another like literally hearing 40% of the of the you know of the floor space speaking in fluent chinese and this is of course with everyone having visa issues and and you know and not being the easiest time nowadays to get a flight from new york to china the like amount of native english speakers is out maybe like 20% and the sort of gender split being 80-20 but it it more more mostly just it being clear that this is like a global community that has come together congregated like more or less under American institutional auspices to push this field forward was something that was really impactful to sort of like see manifested in front of me. I don't know, thoughts, reflections on that just being something that's like so core to to this field nowadays? I think it's worth remembering that NeurIPS is a really unique beast. So the history of NeurIPS is interesting here. It, It really started in the 80s as a much, you know, smaller, a much, 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 much smaller community, much more specialized community. And if you look at where the early NeurIPS conferences were held, they were always proximate to like ski resorts, I think, just because the... <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I mean that, you know, Vancouver, <laughs> Vancouver Tahoe... Vancouver is still the metaphorical yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. If there, that's right. I think if there is... So the, the one time I went in person was NeurIPS... 2019, which, you know, the next few years were kind of ravaged by COVID. But yeah, that was in I think that's the only time I've ever gone, but we didn't go together. Oh, no, we didn't go together. That's interesting. Yeah, I was there with, I had another paper there. But yeah, it was, I guess Vancouver is the spiritual home. But yeah, people liked, you know, there, it was it was a vibe. People liked being proximate to the slopes. They, you know, gradient descent has always been popular, I think, it, for this reason. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a little bit of a deep learning joke there. Yeah, so I think I think it's, it's, it's growth. I haven't seen a chart to this effect. I'm sure people have made them, but it, it has been exponential. Maybe isn't a big enough word. It's more like logarithmic in terms of the participants. I think even since the year since 2019, this is like much, 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 much larger. It's really not comparable to, in my opinion, really even any other annual academic conference in another discipline. You know, whether that's like the Modern Language Association or like the American Sociological Association or like the equivalents for political science. Those those disciplines also have what you would consider rather large annual meetings. But NeurIPS is just not comparable. It's much more indicative of, again, what I've been taken to calling the academic industrial complex, where you kind of have this <laughs> synergy between the the research cultures of industry and everything that entails with with academic computer science and everything that entails for better and for for worse. 
a fun anecdote. I think in the book Genius Makers by Kate Metz, which is a fun book for me because it like kind of relives a lot of the excitement of deep learning. It's it's a pre-ChatGPT book that would still hold up about like what the excitement of deep learning unfolding in Silicon Valley was. There's an excerpt where they talk about like this metaphorical auction of I think like Jeffrey Hinton of which company is going to go to, and it's at Tahoe. I think it's at NERPS 2012, which was mm-hmm. in Tahoe. I confirmed in the background that NERPS 2012 was in Tahoe. Tahoe. So yeah. that's a funny connection that people that may have actually read that book could put together. But yeah, it's Tom summarized it pretty well. It's not surprising to me that it's international. I think I've long since gone through that shock where a large extent of the papers that you surface are 100% non-American, non-North American affiliation, a lot of them are Asian, or a lot of the people that you work with in the States at companies or academics alike are internationals or immigrants or something. It's like a a vast extent. I think most of the people I've worked with have not been like, oh yeah, I grew up in, (laughs) like it's way less likely to be like, I grew up in Missouri and now I'm an AI researcher at Google. Like, I don't know if I've ever heard that. (laughs) (laughs) It's always different stuff. So I'd echo, I guess what I was trying to sum up what I was saying earlier and Nate made it a little bit more explicit. I'll just say it. NeurIPS is not what I would call a cosmopolitan entity. It is kind of a, a network effect it's network at scale, right? So it's in a certain sense, it's actually, although it's it's like tens of thousands, many, several tens of thousands of people at this point. But in another sense, it's really quite clubby. And in some ways that does go back to these very kind of academically elite cultural kind of foundations going back decades for it. And in another sense, goes back to the kind of network and capital effects of industry. And so it's kind of, you see that when you go, you see those power laws. You mentioned two of them in terms of gender and language, but there, there are many others, I think, also in scope here. So, Nathan, whose job is it to understand what's happening at the cutting edge of research? It's probably like six people that do it for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. So... So for like society and like governance and policymakers to like appropriately respond to the changes that we're all going to see in AI, like whose job is it to read the posters and understand if Mamba's real or not, and just more broadly get a sense of what you know what's happening at the cutting edge of research in this field? I think NeurIPS is actually kind of a hard place to do it because you'll have a distribution of how many people update their posters and slides with new work versus the people that are more academic that are like, oh yeah, I did this project eight months ago. I made my talk then. I haven't touched it since then. We're just going to get up. I'm just going to gonna spin the wheels and do my academic stuff. And the other half of the people are like, oh yeah, I got this project that we continued off the press four days ago. I'm going to print my poster in New Orleans and include only new results because they're exciting. So you have to learn how to sift through that, which is kind of hard to do at a conference. Also, because the people giving like the big talks, like half of them are just established academics that give the same talk every time. So you have to like learn who says what and what type of thing, which is hard to do at a conference. But really the idea is like, who are the people that are going to make sense of research to kind of understand the trajectory of the field as a whole i think a lot of it is behind closed doors i think probably a lot of people that are doing it are vcs which is not very useful to achieving like more social and more generally like common good outcomes i think 
this is part of why I've like joined the Allen Institute. They're very supportive of me just trying to do this. It fits with their mission of like AI for the common good. It's like, we just want to understand so that more people can be uplifted by it. I think that's why it's nice to work at a nonprofit. Like learning is the <laughs> learning is the answer. There is also part of why I want more academics to be vocal in this regard. I think it's easy for a professor that's kind of already made it and have tenure to not step up to a new challenge, but like, I think at some time, I, I like maybe you two know more about ac like yeah. intellectual history, but like, what is the history of academia and professors being in the public conversation around technologies? Hopefully, other than like the Manhattan Project, like that's way overblown. Like a professor talking about AI is not really comparable to that. But other examples where professors have translated deep expertise into aiding technological revolutions would be very useful. I'm hoping that that's a type of role that academics can play because a lot of the industry members are have a conflict of interest where it's like they, they're not incentivized in making it clear on what is actually happening on the ground. And no one can forecast more than a few months out, but I think even that few months helps people set expectations. There's always this perverse incentive in academia to be or strive to be the person with the most authority to speak within the Overton window rather than to expand the Overton window or shift it or even just question it, right? And so you often get this kind of growing stress or kind of unspoken energy where who's going to be the five-year-old boy to point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes <laughs> right now. And, you know, NeurIPS is an interesting case for that where you've kind of, I always kind of thought of it, my ontology for it was kind of twofold. You've got what I always call the gauntlet, which is sort of like you had your track NeurIPS paper and you were in that hall and you had your poster and there were certain, you know, kind of usually professors or there were certain people, there was a specific term for this that if you look at the test of time talks, they refer to specific people whose job was sort of to just go around the posters and be, you know, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Okay, interesting. Kind of maybe onto something here. Oh, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Just like, you know, just like this. And that's sort of one mode of the NeurIPS experience. The other mode is sort of this vast... All the people, sorry. Yeah. All the people that do, are good at that are now given huge amounts of money and work in industry. Yeah. That's, that's, like, they're, just, they're just gobbled up. Like, there are people that are very good at that, and it's a skill that takes a lot of time. It doesn't to exist as such anymore. Yeah, it's a, it's a I'm kind of strangely nostalgic for that toxicity. <laughs> but anyway, the, <laughs> the other experience is sort of the kind of really vast side number of conversations that, that NeurIPS makes possible just because it is so huge and it is such a consortium of people. The most obvious example being like the workshops that are held, you know, after the main track of the NeurIPS papers. And often a lot of conversations start there. I believe FACT started as a NeurIPS workshop when it was called FATML. I did a NeurIPS workshop in 2020, which was remote on the political economy of reinforcement learning systems, which you know, I think provided a lot of interesting oxygen to to having a discussion rather than just rather than just presenting papers. So, like, Nathan, can you talk a little bit about your process of identifying and uh, explaining the the different topics that you um, end up covering in Interconnects? 
it's kind of a mix of what breaks through the narrative, which ends up being obvious of like, okay, well, if a model breaks through, it's like showing up everywhere. It shows up in six of your AI newsletters and Twitter has lost their mind to the point of being useless and that type of thing. And those are just stuff that I'm working on or thinking about. I mean, like I have an article coming out tomorrow on multimodality in RLHF just because I know that's coming down the pipe as one of our 2024 goals at AI2. So I'm like, I got to get in. Head of this, like, what are the big themes going to be? Like, what are the things that I know nothing about? That's that sort of things. And I try to keep track of papers that people send me in my area. I've embraced being a domain expert, which I don't actually find that fun, but it makes things a lot easier, which is I kind of have a hard yes or no filter of like, is this related or not? And if things aren't related, I don't really keep track of them, but I keep track of like just a list of papers that are related. You could see when they start to accumulate and there's a clear dichotomy between papers that contribute immediately, which is like they release a model with their method that is useful. I think it's pretty easy to see when that happens. It, it took a while for direct preference optimization, the RLHF method to do that, but those models have now landed. There's an image model in my multimodality post called like Lava RLHF, which is like a language model visual assistant, all sorts of like AI engineering folks are like, oh, I'm playing with this and my product is great. Like. Like when it breaks through like that, it's like, okay, this is the thing to make sense of. But sometimes there's kind of supporting papers that you have to read a lot of papers to understand the scope of their impact. Because just because it's a small paper and the results don't scale, the fact that a bunch of people are saying the same thing in a different way in academia does help kind of validate how people approach problems and stuff like that. So it's like, Especially now, people are often concerned about being scooped because things moved fast. But I think that's really not a big deal now because there's so much reputational gain to participating in language model development that, like, even if someone goes a couple of weeks before of you, you still have to like put your work out proudly and try to do this because you're still part of this by the repetition factor, which is very important to some of these themes of openness and stuff that we've talked about before. So I think it's a lot of just kind of skimming abstracts and figures. Like I don't read papers in detail much. It's like a few a month, really. And sort of when you're looking on the horizon and and thinking about the big one, like what whatever sort of like algorithmic innovation is going to potentially, you know, reshape the way models are trained, like dramatically, you know, change market dynamics, put new different pressures on policymakers. Like, is there a different filter? for that versus like the cute new RLHF methodology? Like how do you stay open to the sort of, you know, potential, you know, next transformer or what have you that will inevitably be showing up? I think most people don't really know. I think most of those things happen and then it takes years for the right time to build them to scale to happen. Like the transformer took years. I think people that were accepting that it was the new deep learning in January of 2023 were still like very early. So like the chat GPT moment happens if you're suitably swayed by chat GPT to be like, oh, okay, this is a big thing. Like you're fine. That's still early. And like, I think that's just the open mind factor of like weird things will come. And if someone tells you like, this might be a big deal, you just kind of take it, with, take it with the appropriate grain of salt and maybe look deeper into it. Or just try to go through the argument of like what needs to happen for this to be a big deal. Like, is it not too unrealistic for this to happen? It's like, 
can this run on NVIDIA GPUs? <laughs> can, like, the Mamba model, which was popular, which was a non-intention model, so a different architecture of the transformer was really popular. And like a large part of that research project was the fact that the, the two authors who are both professors of different schools now like are good at writing NVIDIA kernels. Like they wrote their Invi own NVIDIA kernels for their model and it made it work. Like that's a really rare thing that you have the researcher who also can write NVIDIA CUDA kernels, but like it's the wild card that can make big things mm. happen. And there's just kind of weird infrastructure things that happen like that. But I don't think you have to notice it from day one. I think that's overblown. Any truly big transformation will take longer to play out. So you just kind of have to see when it, things feel unsteady and figure out why. There's this saying in every academic field that there really only are ever three papers. There's the first paper, the best paper, and the last paper. When you're living through a time of hype, like I think what you saw after AlexNet like 10 years ago, and now what you're seeing, of course, with Gen AI, it feels like every paper is the first paper <laughs> of like, okay, this model can do these things and you get this new kind of capability. And, and you know, when, when DPO comes out, it makes people question everything all over again. When, when there's the prospect of QSTAR, everyone's like, oh God, what, what's on the horizon now? There was a paper called V-Star that came out. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> good marketing, but you probably don't need to read it that much. I still think it's true that the kind of owl of Minerva flies at dusk. What that means for us, I don't know. I mean, in retrospect, AlexNet was important, but there really only were a handful of papers that really kind of established that new horizon. And I think the same ultimately will be true for the moment we're in now, but when you're in it, it's, it's hard to distinguish. Uh, closing closing words for our I don't know policy making oriented audience. What what do you hope they keep in mind aside from subscribing to interconnects over the coming months? Don't fall trapped to big tech narratives. It is worth trying to learn more about how they work. Like even if you're not training a model at GPT four size, like doing the silly tutorials where you spin up a GPU somewhere and like loss goes down. I do think is still useful. It's like basically building like building basic software skills is good just to like build some emotional appreciation for the types of things that are happening. And I don't think enough people take the time to do fundamental skills outside of their core, like outside of the deliverables they need to provide. But it's good for being a human being and like having a bigger picture. I would say listen to tech, but trust in yourself. There is an awful lot of topics that tech people have not figured out and often, in my experience, have very little grasp of that are extremely critical for shaping policy. What does procurement mean in the context of a system whose mechanisms are not understood by anyone? <laughs> there, there's no reason to defer to industry on that question. Procurement is not a new problem. Vendors and clients, how it is you structure those relationships, how do patents work, how do these sort of, how do certifications work, how do accreditations work? These are not new problems. I think AI changes the terms, but I think very little of the stakes actually are that new. I do also think we'll need new laws. It's like, there's going to be, especially this year, it's going to be hard because a lot of important decisions in AI are kind of going to get punted to the legal system, when in reality, we might just need new laws. I think that's like the whole, we, Tom and I discussed the whole New York Times open AI thing last week, and 
that's what a lot of it is. I think I listened to more on the kind of analysis of how copyright laws are, like how that is is decided. There's like four different decision points and you could break down the factors, you can compare it to Napster and whatever. And like, it's like, I, I think New York Times is set to lose, but it's not 100% set certain. And, but it is okay to consider if a law is the right decision to support not the New York Times or not supporting the New York Times with media law. It's like smaller media organizations that won't be able to survive as New York Times will survive in the ChatGPT era. And that's that's a deeply political question. It's like, how do we empower legislation over like judicial decision-making? But I think AI is being thrust into that for better or worse. It is often the courts, I think, though, that lead the conversation around even new understandings of existing law. I just was reflecting on like the idea of like a right to privacy as such. I don't even think was articulated and certainly not like reliably expressed in courts until uh, basically wiretapping was a thing. <laughs> if you look at the original court cases during the progressive era, you know, if you look at like actually like the way those cases played out, Justices learned to articulate a new interpretation of existing statutes and ultimately the Constitution itself when challenged to do so by new technical capabilities. It would, I would not be surprised if actually like fundamentally new rights implicit in existing statutes start to be made explicit in response to today's challenges. Tom, you want to take us out with three books? Three books I would recommend to the audience? Yeah. Well... We've been discussing Hirschman. I've done a shout out to some other works by him previously. I would highlight Exit Voice Loyalty as a great book. It's a great book for thinking about the status of the people who are using or induced to consume new technologies and the kind of surprising amount of agency they have in responding to those incentives and then the way that can back propagate back to the things that are offering the service. So Exit Voice Loyalty is a great book. I would also highlight, it's funny, we were discussing textbooks, Sutton and Bartow's textbook on reinforcement learning. I'll give a shout out to, it's a fun read. It's a very important book. It's also, I think, available for free online. Like the PDF is just there. It's not even like a shadowy thing. It's pretty readable, and if you want to have a kind of provocative and firm theoretical grasp of the secret sauce behind LLMs today, that's not a bad place to start. The third book I would recommend would be The Power Broker by Robert Caro about Robert Moses, which is a book, it's a very, it's a famous book. It's an it's a incredibly erudite and also just like page turner about New York and about what cities are and what makes modern cities tragically undemocratic in the way that they have to be run. And it's a, it's a biography of Robert Moses, who is really the person who's most individually responsible for building New York infrastructurally. And it's an, just an incredibly insightful book on how power works and how new kinds of technologies, technological investments and the infrastructures that those entail create the means to broker power across society and the dangers implicit in that that we haven't worked through yet. And I'm hopeful, but also wary of the challenges that AI will pose on that front. All 
shout out a book, which also has a free PDF online. It came out in December of 2023, Understanding Deep Learning by Simon Prince, which is a claims to be a spiritual successor to Deep Learning by Goodfellow et al. from 2016. Mm -hmm. It is like, I think as, you know, having spent a lot of time trying to process and understand exactly what it is that Nathan says on his newsletter. It, it you know, 100 pages in, it feels like it's, it's you know, filling in the gaps in a way that I'm slowly but surely having to sort of chat GPT fewer words in newsletters like Interconnects. So that'll be my shout out. And I just want to thank you two guys for doing what you're doing because there are not a lot of people out there with, you know, the, the sort of deep historical perspective in your case tom or the technical expertise of yours nathan who are who are really who have been you know focused in a sustained way on this and are able to sort of elevate the broader debate and understanding so appreciate what both of you guys do listen to the retort podcast subscribe to interconnects and really looking forward to continuing the conversation thank you so much for being a part of china talking to yeah thanks thanks we had fun yeah <laughs> Good. <laughs>